I heard a story in a sermon some years ago of a shepherd who stopped his parish priest as he was walking along and said, Father, how long does it take to become a priest? My son is very interested in becoming one and going to seminary, but he needs to know how long it will take. And so the priest gave him the full breakdown and said, well, with Franciscans, for example, it is initially six to nine years before final discernment and further training. With missionary orders like the Redemptorists, it could be 10 years, but the largest order in the world, the Jesuits, they take a very long time. It could easily take 13 years. The shepherd thought about all of this and said, Father, I think my son should become a Jesuit because he is a bit slow. When I look back on my own path in comparison, the shepherd's son looks like a genius. <laughs> Having grown up in the Anglican Communion in the Church of South India, I finished my seminary training in the city of Bangalore more than four decades ago. However, I was unready to serve the church and so I embarked on a teaching career, teaching in India, in Macau, in Manila, and then Hong Kong, and serving as a lay person on the side. But in Hong Kong, I felt the call and was ordained in the Lutheran Church about 20 years ago. But now, I find myself called to return to the Anglican fold through the Episcopal Diocese of Oregon with your support and warm embrace. I can therefore relate well to all who discover the thrill of a third act in life when even midlife is a distant memory. Nicodemus may have been in this situation. He lived an exemplary life as a Pharisee, following all the 613 laws in the tradition scrupulously, and eventually becoming a member of the great council, the Sanhedrin. What were the expectations of Pharisees? They are described by Josephus as being extremely virtuous and sober and despising luxuries, they led lives of great austerity. They committed the Torah to memory, that is, the entire books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If that sounds like a stretch, consider the example of a couple of Buddhist monks from India who were brought to Wisconsin to serve the community there. They had to learn to drive 
but the driver's manual gave them a lot of trouble. And so they decided to memorize all 80 pages of the driver's manual, which they did, and passed the test with ease. The ethics of the Pharisees was based upon the principle, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. That is, strive to imitate God. The object of the law, according to these principles, was to realize responsibility to God and the consecration of life by staying away from impure people and impure things to attain the degree of holiness and righteousness required. The Pharisees yielded to temporal powers even as they waited for the kingdom of God, consoling themselves in the meantime with the spiritual freedom granted by the study of the law. They were also familiar with baptism, first expressed by Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water upon you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. This is what Nicodemus did all his life. So why did he go to Jesus? While we think about that question, we also have to remember that in the gospel presentation by John, the story is being told decades after the events described, and during this time, catastrophic events took place. The second temple was totally destroyed. Over a million people perished in the siege of Jerusalem or were enslaved. And this was so successful a Roman campaign that a grand celebration, a triumph was held to celebrate the fall of Jerusalem. Two triumphal arches were built <coughs> Excuse me. to commemorate the fall with the treasures looted from the temple put on display. This was also the time period in which some of the followers of Jesus began to distance themselves from the synagogues and to create their own assemblies. And John's audience would locate the visit of Nicodemus in this fearful context that they were living through, the aftermath of a terrible war with death and destruction close at hand. Nicodemus does not pose a question, but acknowledges that Jesus is a learned teacher whose mighty works indicate God's presence with him. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again or from above. And the ambiguity leads to the famous Nicodemusian quip, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? I think Nicodemus is emphasizing 
the nature of human life, one birth, one life, and that life better lived by following the law. But Jesus is describing something much greater that we first see in the magnificent prologue to this gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. John brings us to a realization of the cosmic Christ through the dynamism of the Trinity. The Jesus of history is getting Nicodemus to grasp the depth of this Christ event that transcends history and the law that Nicodemus had so painstakingly followed. The earthly life that we know and love is not the beginning and end of the story of God's love, which is seen in the continuous acts of grace that we experience and that have permeated human history through the ages and will continue to do so. Against that, <clears throat> experiences such as those of healing that are described and including the healing of the people bitten by venomous snakes who got healed when they gazed at the bronze snake lifted up by Moses, all healing is temporary. Nobody experiences immortality. This is our fate. But the end of life is not the end of our existence because we are born of both water and spirit. Jesus is elevating the narrow understanding that Nicodemus had. The law pertains to flesh alone. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. And now we come to the most quoted verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. What is the most precious gift that you ever received? Was it jewelry? Was it an automobile? Was it a home? And when you think back on that gift, do you focus on the gift or the great love of the one who gave it to you? With this perspective, we look at this verse differently. For God so loved the world. He gave his son, but we were not fortunate enough to witness it. 
even Paul, the great witness of the church, did not witness the earthly Jesus. But he claims his place as an apostle no less than any of the disciples because of his experience of the cosmic Christ. The love of God did not end with the time of Jesus on earth. It continues in the infinite grace that we experience reminding us that God can only be understood as love and that we are every day always in the process of being transformed by and reflecting that love. There is much more to receive and more to give than we might think possible because God's love is infinite. To be born of water and the Spirit, to be born from above, to be born again is not a single act or a single decision. It is like birth, a process, the beginning of a process of becoming that never reaches perfection. And so to narrow the meaning and import of this verse <clears throat> to an understanding that focuses primarily on the death of Jesus as being the only reason for his birth is to miss the fact of incarnation, that God is understood in his revelation through creation and through Christ. <coughs> to focus entirely on Jesus' death is an anemic notion as is individual salvation, ignoring everything else around us. But an incarnational understanding highlights the unity of spirit and flesh, so that it's not one at the cost of the other. Thus, to be born again is more about being awakened to new life than accepting a particular creed, more about visioning Christ than obeying the law and more about growing in an unbounded love for all things created to see Christ in all of creation and in every person whom we set eyes upon and thus to truly live in Christ. Being the humble recipients of the ongoing great love of God lifts us out of our crippling fears for our society, for the earth, for our loved ones, and the fear of our own ill health and weakness. The cosmic Christ takes us even to that final human experience, death. But Christ takes us to it, through it, and beyond it because we recognize that we are more in our total being than the dust of which we are composed. We know, experience, and continue to hope for in abundance the continuing manifestation of God's breathtaking, transforming love. This Lenten season, we are called to join Christ in this new life that is eternal, recognizing that it offers much more 
than we can see or imagine. We are made of much more than we are in our years of life or health or ability and can live in Christ's love until our very final breath. Eternal life is to experience never being separate from God and to know that we can never be separated from God and His love. What we see in Jesus the Christ and celebrate in the Eucharist is not death but hope and the glory of the eternal Word who was and is and will be forever. For God so loved the world.